Hello, and welcome to the March 24th, 2023 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. The start of the 2023 North American racing season is finally upon us. In one week, an absolutely sensational professional field is going to line up to take on the Ocean Swim in Carlsbad, California for the Oceanside 70.3. And just like that, with the sound of the cannon, we will finally, at long last, be out of the winter doldrums and into the spring 70.3 season. And what a start it is set to be. I cannot remember a start list that looks quite as sensational as the one that we are going to see in a week outside of a world championship. On the men's side, the defending champion Jackson Laundry will be there, but is practically an afterthought, given that this race will feature the highly anticipated return of one Jan Ferdano. Everyone is going to be watching the big German, including myself, and he's won here before, but we really want answers to a lot of questions about him. How has he recovered from all of his injuries? What kind of form is he in? And most importantly, can he still compete at his age after such a long layoff? Now, it's not going to help that Jan is going to be surrounded by some of the biggest names and fastest men in our sport. Lionel Sanders is going to attempt to redeem himself for crashing out on the bike at the Miami Clash race that was won by Jason West, who is also going to be an Oceanside. The never shy or particularly quiet Sam Long, who is fourth in Miami, is eager to show everyone that he can back up his very brash bravado. 2022 Ironman 70.3 World Championship silver medalist and a recent guest of this very podcast, Ben Knut, is going to want to prove his bona fides. And Chris Lieferman, the fourth place finisher at the Ironman World Championship in St. George last spring, will also be at the start. But wait, there's more, because the men's pro list stretches to 73 names and includes the likes of the 2022 ITU World Champion, Frenchman Leo Berger, Sam Appleton, Eric Lagerstrom, and many, many more. It is going to be an incredible kickoff to the WT season in North America and is going to be must-see watching for any avid triathlon fan like myself. Now, on the women's side, it's going to be quite a race as well. Reigning Ironman world champion Chelsea Sodaro is going to make her first start since conquering the Queen K last October, and I got to tell you, she's not going to have an easy time of it, facing off against the likes of Kat Matthews, who's definitely going to want to show that she has what it takes to battle the world champion after missing Kona last year after a really horrific bike crash in Texas during her final preps for the Ironman world championship. In addition, 70.3 superstars Paula Finley will be there, as will Holly Lawrence. And there's going to be a couple of dark horse competitors in the form of super fast runners Tamara Jewett and Jackie Herring. So all in all, it's shaping up to be a scintillating race to watch. Now let's hope the broadcast production for Ironman can come close to matching what's going to be transpiring on the course. There's one other story that I wanted to comment on before getting to the program today, and that comes not from triathlon, but from the world of professional cycling, where a few weeks ago, the third place finisher in the women's Strata Bianca was disqualified for using a continuous glucose monitor during the competition. Kristen Faulkner had a fantastic day while traversing the white gravel sections leading up to the piazza in Siena, where the race concluded, but she was unfortunately later removed from the official results by the UCI for violating the rule related to using one of these patches. 
According to Faulkner, she wasn't actually monitoring any of the data that the patch was transmitting in real time and was only using the device to gather information to be used after the fact. Now, I'm not going to get into whether or not the punishment fit the crime or how the UCI seems to treat various rules and fractions somewhat unevenly, especially across gender, although both of those arguments do have merit. I do, however, find myself wondering why a professional cyclist would take such a risk for a technology that remains really, really dubious. Since continuous glucose monitoring first came out, we have heard nothing but how fantastic it is and how it would change training and racing and how we do nutrition. And yet, a few years later, it seems as though there continues to be more hype than anything else. I continue to see absolutely zero evidence in the scientific literature to support any of the claims being made by the numerous device makers. There have been absolutely no high-profile results by any of the athletes who are sponsored by them. And among the many age groupers who I have spoken with who have been using this technology, most have found it to be no more than a novelty, and many have stopped using it because of the high cost of the monitoring patches. Super Sapiens, the makers of the device that Faulkner was wearing, released what, honestly, in my mind, was an incredibly cynical press release, in which they make claims to be studying continuous glucose monitoring in women in order to evaluate menstrual cycle influences on glucose levels. And other writers in Bicycling Magazine and such have spoken about how these devices could be helpful to ensure women fuel more in a world where disordered eating is so prevalent among female athletes. Look, I'm sorry, but I gotta call bullshit. I've spoken many times about how the menstrual cycle does not have a significant impact on glucose control, despite what you may have heard from Dr. Sims. And continuous glucose monitoring is not necessary to encourage women to eat more. That's on coaches and on the culture of women's sport in general. The reality is, there is no science to support continuous glucose monitoring in non-diabetic athletes. And this remains a huge marketing ploy by the makers of these devices, and for now at least, nothing more. Now, if science comes out that shows that this device is anywhere close to what they say it is, I will reframe what I have to say about it. But for now, it's a shame that this cyclist, Kristen Faulkner, got caught up in this. But her team and her coaches need to stop being played by these companies. On the show today, I'm going to be updating a few different subjects that I have covered in the past on this podcast. Look, science is not a static field, and so it really shouldn't come as any surprise that once I make a conclusion on something that I review on this program, additional studies are still going to come out that may lend additional support to what I said or alternatively can upend my conclusions completely. In an effort to stay current and ensure that I'm bringing you the most recent evidence on the subjects that I've discussed, I want to update a few of the things that I've talked about before by addressing any more recent evidence that's come out in the intervening time since I first covered them. Now, there's nothing really groundbreaking to report. Science rarely provides a 180-degree turn, after all. But there's definitely some interesting things to say about some of the subjects, and I think that you'll appreciate hearing them. That's going to be coming up in just a little bit. Later, I'm excited to bring you a conversation that I had just a little while ago with Dr. Izzy Smith from Australia. 
Izzy is an endocrinologist with a passion for running and women's reproductive health. She is the medical expert for the women's running organization FEMI, and that's spelled F-E-M-M-I. And that is a coaching and educational platform that trains women to their menstrual cycle and educates coaches and athletes on sports endocrinology for the female athlete. We had a great conversation on female reproductive endocrinology, what FEMI is and what she does with them, and you can hear all of that in just a short while. Before all of that, I want to take a moment once again to thank all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, they could sign up to support this program and in doing so get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out about every month. For North American subscribers at the $10 per month level of support, I also have a special thank you gift for you in the form of a pretty cool Boco TriDoc podcast running hat. So I hope that you'll visit my Patreon site today at patreon.com forward slash Podcast and see the different ways that you could potentially become a supporter and get access to these different bonus episodes and maybe this cool gift as well. And as always, I thank you so much in advance just for considering. As I said in the introduction, science is not a static field. And what I mean by this is that over time, as more and more experimentation is done to try and answer a question, our knowledge about that question may change as more and more data is added to the collective body of evidence. That's why we can hear about a, quote, groundbreaking study, end quote, that gives us an answer about something one day, and then, seemingly a short time later, we might hear about a new groundbreaking study that completely refutes what we already thought we knew based on that first study. More commonly, though, science doesn't do 180-degree turns like that. Instead, studies tend to build upon each other so that researchers will take the results of one study and then conduct an experiment designed to further flesh out the details that leads to a gradual layering on of evidence until finally, over time, we get closer to what we believe is the truth. All of this is to say, when you hear someone talk about a given study, you should always take it with a grain of salt. Why is this one study the final word? What have other studies on the same question concluded? How do I know that additional studies in the future aren't going to come out undoing the results of this one? When I review subjects for this podcast, I always try to include the most recent research to be sure that I'm bringing you the most up-to-date information, but I always include the findings of previous studies as well so that I know that there is consistency in what's been presented. If there isn't, I try to say so. I'm careful to not make black and white proclamations about whether or not something is truly good or bad, and I try to emphasize that just because the research shows a certain conclusion, those conclusions apply broadly to populations, and that individuals may still find that they get different results. In addition, it's really important to understand that any time I review a subject, I'm not giving the final word, but rather just giving the most up-to-date understanding, and that with the passage of time, newer studies can come out that reinforce what I have said, or alternatively, are going to show that I was wrong, and are going to have to give me the opportunity to rethink my conclusions. Well, all of this leads me up to today's medical segment, in which I'm going to revisit a few topics that I've discussed previously, because I've come across newer research that may allow me to reinforce what I said previously, or alternatively, may force me to think about changing my mind. Now, those subjects that I'm going to revisit today are cold water immersion therapy, platelet-rich plasma injections, bicarbonate use, and stretching. 
Let's start with cold water immersion therapy. This is something that I talked about really quite a while ago, back in episode 22. At that time, I looked at the evidence on cold water therapy as it related to recovery from hard efforts. You may recall that uh, I spoke at the time about how this was something that came about because long-distance runners, specifically ultra-runners, would finish their events often next to a really cold stream, and they would go and they'd just sit in the water, and that cooling effect of the water made them feel great. And this led to scientists thinking that, well, maybe they were onto something. Well, I was particularly interested in episode 22, not so much in the idea of sitting in cold water, but in looking at garments that circulated cold water to sore and aching limbs. But I did discuss cold water immersion in that segment as well. And at the time, I said that there was no evidence to support the idea that cold water therapy was any better than any other modality at improving recovery or decreasing delayed onset muscle soreness, which were the two major indications that this treatment was touted as being good for. I also found that there was a reasonable, although small, amount of evidence to suggest that cold water immersion specifically, not so much the cold water garments, but really sitting in ice baths, might actually be harmful to performance. But all cold water treatments, no matter how you did it, cold water garments, sitting in ice baths, all of them seem to have a positive psychological benefit. And at the time I did the review, I concluded by saying that there was really no compelling reason to use cold water therapy for physiologic reasons. It wasn't going to actually improve your recovery or remove delayed onset muscle soreness, but if it made you feel good psychologically, it probably wasn't going to hurt. Well, there's a new paper that came out last year, and it was titled Effects of Cold Water Immersion Compared with Other Recovery Modalities on Athletic Performance Following Acute Strenuous Exercise in Physically Active Participants, a Systematic Review, Meta-Analysis, and Meta-Regression. Now, it is truly a very lengthy title and kind of hides the fact that it does a lot of straining of credulity in coming up with some of the conclusions, but essentially, the authors pulled together all of the papers that they could find that compared cold water immersion to various other modalities, including warm water immersion, massage, active recovery, and a few other assorted things, in order to pool data and determine if cold water immersion was truly any better for improving delayed onset muscle soreness, recovery that would lead to improved muscle power or strength, perceived psychological recovery, flexibility, or serum markers for muscle damage, specifically looking at serum creatinine kinase, CK, which is a chemical that's leaked into the blood in higher amounts when you have increased muscle injury. Now, based on the tables reported in the results section of this paper, it was pretty clear that cold water immersion was really no better than any of the other modalities for any of the predefined outcomes. The authors then reconfigured their results in visual formats that were a little bit misleading. But reading the fine print, you could tell that no matter how they tried to massage the results or how they displayed them, cold water immersion was really no better than the other modalities combined. Or, when compared to individual modalities, cold water immersion would maybe offer a trivial benefit, though rarely one that was statistically significant. In other words, even that trivial benefit versus one or another modality may have been due to chance alone and was not a true finding. The author's conclusions were, quote, as a recovery method, 
cold water immersion is as effective as other recovery modalities for recovery following strenuous exercise in physically active individuals, end quote, which, in my mind, was putting the most positive spin on a negative study that you could possibly do. Remember, the hypothesis of this study was that cold water immersion was actually better than the other modalities, so a more accurate conclusion would have been that cold water immersion is no better than anything else or is equal to all of the other things. But given that these authors had a grant to specifically evaluate cold water immersion, I can understand why they chose to go with a more positive sounding conclusion. At any rate, the end result is the same. My determination in episode 22 still holds true. Cold water immersion is basically the same as any other recovery method, and not the panacea that those who proselytize about it would have you believe. While this study did not get into the psychological benefits, I I see no reason why those would be any different, and so my recommendation remains the same. If you enjoy cold water immersion, then by all means, go ahead. Just don't think that it's doing anything for you in terms of improving recovery or reducing the likelihood of muscle soreness, because based on all of the evidence, it's really not. And there is still the very small possibility that it might be detrimental to performance, at least in the short term, though I can't say with great conviction that that's actually the case. Now, the second subject with an update is platelet-rich plasma injections. In episode 72, a little more recently, I reviewed the evidence for this modality. To refresh your memory, PRP, platelet-rich plasma, is a process where a sample of your blood is taken and the plasma and platelets are then separated from the other cells, specifically the red blood cells and the white blood cells, which are then re-injected back into your bloodstream. This platelet-rich mixture is then injected into a site where a chronic injury exists, and usually that injury is in the form of a tendinopathy, though PRP has been advocated for plantar fasciitis and some other ailments as well. PRP is hypothesized to work by virtue of the high concentrations of growth factors that are included within the platelets and the plasma around it, and these growth factors serve to modulate inflammation, promote the growth of local blood vessels, recruit local stem cells to the site of injury, inhibit catabolic enzymes or enzymes that would cause the destruction of tissues, as well as inhibiting local cytokines, which are inflammatory chemicals. They are purported to induce healthy nearby cells to manufacture greater numbers of growth factors as well. So, the local use of PRP directly at the site of tendinopathy is believed to stimulate a natural healing cascade and accelerate the formation of the repair of tendon tissue, which otherwise really doesn't repair all that well. What I found when I reviewed the literature back in episode 72 was that despite these really impressive theoretical benefits and the very aggressive marketing of PRP, The evidence, unfortunately, didn't really support any of the claimed or theorized benefits. Study after study tended to refute any notion that PRP improved outcomes for any of Achilles tendinopathy, plantar fasciitis, or tendinopathy of the knee or hip. Only for tennis elbow, lateral lateral epicondylitis, it's a mouthful, but only for tennis elbow did I find some suggestion of benefit, and even then, the benefit tended to be pretty modest. Well, a new paper in January of this year in the Clinical Journal of Sports Medicine came out that I thought merited review since it appeared to do a very comprehensive review of all of the data on the subject up to that point. 
It was titled, The Efficacy of Platelet-Rich Plasma Versus Placebo in the Treatment of Tendinopathy, a Meta-Analysis of Randomized Controlled Trials. This paper synthesized the data from the best kinds of studies in medicine. Those are randomized controlled trials where you blindly randomize patients to either get the treatment, which is platelet-rich plasma, or a placebo. And you don't tell the patient which they're getting, and preferably you don't tell the treating physician which they're getting either, and then you just look at the results. Unfortunately, when you drill down to get the best kinds of studies, there were only 13 of them. And this goes to show how poor the science was that likely led up to PRP gaining any kind of traction in the first place. Now, those 13 studies covered Achilles tendinopathy, tennis elbow, rotator cuff tendinopathy, and patellar tendinopathy, or a tendinopathy of the knee. And in summarizing the data, PRP was found to be no better than placebo for any outcome measure for any of the elements evaluated. The conclusions of the authors was pretty, I think, self-explanatory. Quote, Platelet-rich plasma injection was not found to be superior to placebo in the treatment of tendinopathy as measured by pain relief and functional improvement at any of 4 to 6, 12, and greater than 24 weeks, end quote. I'd say that's pretty definitive. Now, plantar fasciitis was not looked at in this study, and if something comes out on that specific entity, I'll be sure to bring you an update. But for now, based on what I said originally, PRP is not particularly helpful for that either. The next study that I want to talk about relates to bicarbonate therapy. Now, this was less about me wanting to update the issue based on any particularly recent study coming out and more about the fact that a recent product was released. You may have caught wind of the fact that Morton, the company who supplies gels to Ironman events, well, they've now introduced a new product to their lineup. Along with their regular 100-calorie gel and that one that contains caffeine, they now offer a bicarbonate distribution tool. Essentially, you buy a box that contains a really cute little bowl, their proprietary hydrogel formula, and some baking soda. And you mix it all together, and voila, you get a bicarb gel. Now, this stuff is not cheap. Four servings are going to set you back 65 bucks. So don't expect to see this being handed up at your next event. Well, I got into a very amicable discussion, it really was, it was quite amicable, on Instagram with another coach about whether or not this stuff makes any sense at all, and at the time I referred back to episode 58, when I reviewed the evidence, at that time I was unable to find a compelling reason to use this supplement, specifically if you're an endurance athlete. Yes, bicarbonate does have some effects for people like weightlifters, and those who partake in anaerobic events, like sprint events, that last anywhere from... 30 seconds to like 10 minutes. But for those of us in the triathlon world, the notion that bicarbonate was going to be helpful in any way was just not rooted in reality. And the evidence supported that completely, with no benefits being seen in swimmers or runners and questionable benefits to cyclists, though none seen in cyclists who are partaking in longer events. So given this new product release, I thought it was worthwhile looking at whether or not any new research had been published on the subject, and indeed there had, sort of. Rather than being an actual new experiment, what I found was something called an umbrella analysis that essentially pulled together a bunch of meta-analyses that all looked at bicarbonate supplementation in athletes. The 2021 publication was titled Effects of Sodium Bicarbonate Supplementation on Exercise Performance, an Umbrella Review, and appeared in the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. Now, 
I've talked before about meta-analyses at length, and I've talked a bit about the dangers of them. They're potentially really powerful studies because they allow for the pooling of data from smaller studies in order to get a larger sample size, which can make the results a little more generalizable and a little more realistic. But the pooling of that data, which can make them more powerful, is also their weakness. Because you can't control for differences in the individual study samples, and you also can't control for any biases or errors in data collection that occurred in those smaller studies. So when you pool your studies together, you can compound those errors and biases. Well, an umbrella review really just compounds this problem serially because the kind of this kind of paper pools together a bunch of meta-analyses, each of which may have compounded smaller errors, and so you end up getting a larger data set, and you can imagine how this can just cause this whole thing to, to gather snow like a, a snowball rolling downhill, and you just get an overall larger error rate, and the results can be significantly less trustworthy. Still, we could definitely take something from this kind of study, so long as it doesn't go and make some bold new claims that are vastly different from any of the studies it compiles. And in this case, to be fair, that did not happen. So I think we can at least look at this at face value and take what they say and at least consider it. Now, a total of eight studies were included, and that comprised just a little over 1,100 subjects. These studies evaluated bicarbonate supplementation in different protocols and for different uses and with vastly different outcome measures. The authors concluded that, quote, based on the meta-analytic evidence, it can be concluded that sodium bicarbonate supplementation acutely enhances peak anaerobic power, anaerobic capacity, performance and endurance events lasting 45 seconds to 8 minutes, muscle endurance, 2,000-meter rowing performance, and high-intensity high intermittent running, end quote. They went on to say that bicarbonate offered no benefits to muscle strength or power, and that, quote, no significant difference between the effects of sodium bicarbonate and placebo was found for general mean power, muscle strength, and repeated sprint ability. Essentially, this is in keeping with what I found when I last reviewed the topic, and I would not change my advice. Bicarbonate supplementation is simply not indicated for endurance athletes competing in triathlons, unless that is, of course, your event is less than eight minutes in duration. I should also note that bicarbonate is notorious for causing significant gastrointestinal effects and can be incredibly hard to tolerate. And to be fair, this is something that the Morton product aims to alleviate. But given the lack of utility for longer distance events, I don't advise that you experiment with it just to determine if it really is easier on your stomach. And one last thing about bicarbonate too. Too much bicarbonate can have adverse health effects, so supplementation with this should really be undertaken with caution if you're considering doing it for any reason. The last update that I want to address is also the most recent topic that I reviewed on the podcast. Just two programs ago, in episode 113, I reviewed the evidence for and against stretching, and literally within a week of putting that out, a new paper was published in the journal Sports Medicine that added kind of a new perspective on the question. As a reminder, in my discussion of stretching, I summarized the research that basically supports no benefits of stretching in terms of injury prevention and potentially even suggested some detrimental effects on performance if static stretching is done too vigorously as part of a warm-up. I also talked about how stretching definitely improves flexibility, but how unfortunately that doesn't really seem to translate to performance benefits. Well, this new study looks at a different aspect of stretching. 
Where I was interested specifically on how stretching as part of a routine warm-up could impact performance and injury prevention, this paper was more focused on long-term benefits. It was titled The Chronic Effects of Static Stretching Exercises on Muscle Strength and Power in Healthy Individuals Across the Lifespan, a Systematic Review with Multi-Level Meta-Analysis. And this paper sought to look at the benefits of static stretching over time, rather than just related to the effects on a specific training session. And the results were actually really interesting, and I think reinforced the assertions I made in my segment, but this paper definitely adds some nuance. For example, the authors here noted that in almost 1,200 participants, ranging in age from as young as 8 to as old as 80, static stretching had really trivial effects on muscle strength and power, but moderate to large effects on flexibility. So here, stretching wasn't so much detrimental to strength and power, but it really didn't help all that much either. What I found most interesting was that stretching was found to be most beneficial to older adults and to those who were more sedentary. In other words, the positive effects of stretching were seen to decline with increasing training status. So if you're more active, stretching didn't seem to help as much as if you were less active. So in essence, stretching remains a good thing for improving flexibility and is likely a good thing for older, less active individuals and anyone who tends to be more sedentary at any age. But again, For those who are more active, aside from the benefits of flexibility, which I do not intend to minimize in any way, stretching is likely not necessary for most regularly training triathletes who would be better served with an active warm-up instead. And that's it for the update on the science of several different topics that I've covered before, at least for this go-around. If you come across some research that you think runs counter to what I found on a previous episode, I hope that you'll let me know so I could put out a similar update in the future. As always, you can do that, or you can submit any question that you might want me to answer on the program by sending me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or of course, there's the option of joining the private Facebook group. You can look for TriDoc Podcast on that platform, answer a couple of really easy questions, I'll grant you access, you can join the conversation and submit your questions there. My guest on the podcast today is Dr. Izzy Smith, and I'm really excited to have Izzy here because I've been working pretty hard to get her on the podcast for quite some time. We connected originally over Instagram because of our shared background as physicians and our shared interest in triathlon. Izzy, unlike myself, is an endocrinologist, me being an emergency physician. Also, unlike myself, she lives and works in Sydney, Australia. Whereas I, of course, am here in Denver, Colorado. Izzy is the medical expert for the women's running organization called FEMI. That's F-E-M-M-I. And that is a coaching and educational platform that trains women to their menstrual cycle and educates coaches and athletes on sports endocrinology for the female athlete. Izzy's also a runner and dabbles in triathlon when she can find the time. She focuses mostly on short and Olympic distances, but is hoping at some point when she has a little more time when she finishes her time being a registrar, which is equivalent to a resident here in the United States, to move to the 70.3 distance at some point. But right now she lives with her little wiener in Sydney, and she has taken some time to join me here on the TriDoc Podcast. Welcome at last, Dr. Izzy Smith. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you so much, Jeff. And I will apologize in advance if my wiener dog makes any barking noises during the podcast. We've had several dog interruptions on other interviews, so it will be no problem at all. Izzy, I want to start really just, if you could tell the listeners, what is FEMI? Where did it come from? Yeah, so FEMI is a 
a female athlete organization that has a few different prongs to the company. One is a coaching aspect, which we coach women and we have them track their menstrual cycle and learn about how they feel, how they recover and how they may perform at different parts of their cycle. So it's not telling women you should feel this way or you should feel that way. This is how you'll be. It's about getting women to learn more about their body and understand that our female hormones, which often get a bad rap, are actually very beneficial for health and professors. So it's a, a coaching mainly runners, but we do have some triathletes as well. The other part of the business then, which I'm quite involved in, is the FEMI kind of education, which is educating anyone who works with female athletes. So that could be coaches, PE teachers, doctors, because there's unfortunately still a lot of misunderstanding about female athlete health. We've seen a lot of high profile cases of girls when they're teenagers who have a lot of potential and they're trained too hard, they lose their periods and then their performance drops off and they pull out of the sport because they've stopped loving it. So the educational part of the business is myself, a doctor specializing in endocrinology with an interest in female athletes, a dietitian who also specializes in women's health and female athletes, and then a women's health physiotherapist. And we're all runners ourselves. And I do really think having, and there's also a psychologist, sorry, And I do really think having us have the clinical experience, the academic knowledge and being runners does make it unique because we've just got such a kind of, I guess, wealth of experience between all of us. So yeah, it's the educational course called Femi Theory. And then we're also working on an app, which if anyone has tried to make an app, it is a lot more work and will always take more time than you realize. But that's the kind of coaching app, which will be also educational for menstrual cycle and female health as well. Now, there were a couple of things that you mentioned in there that I want to highlight. The first being that you're not telling women what to expect, but rather trying to help women get in touch with their cycle and how it affects them individually. And that differs from, shall we say, another person who markets themselves in this space. I want you to kind of focus on that because I know that listeners of this podcast will be familiar with a couple of episodes in which I've discussed menstrual health and how some purveyors of this notion that you have to be almost a slave to your menstrual cycle have kind of misinformed women along this way. So what's your take on that? How how do menstrual or female hormones impact women? And, and can it be said that it impacts women the same across everyone? Or how much variability is there? So it's a really good question. And something that when I got involved with Femi, I wanted to be really clear of the message we were spreading that There is so much individual variation and the last thing we want to do is psych people out if they have a race at a certain part of their cycle that may classically be told you might not perform well in this part. So if we look at the evidence, and we really are evidence-based, we're not trying to come up with these crazy new flash ideas that are outrageous, which any outrageous ideas always get a lot of attention. But when we look at the evidence, there is a lot of variability in the studies. The biggest one Sorry, I'm getting a bit academic here, but there was a recent meta-analysis by Kelly McNulty, which really showed when we look at all the different studies, it's so mixed. And you could take different thoughts on that. You could say, one, there's a lot of individual variability. Two, the quality of the studies looking at this as an issue. Some are good, some are not very good. So that could explain the variety of the results. And I think in reality, there's a mix. We know hormones work by acting. They a hormone is essentially a message that goes through the bloodstream and then has an action somewhere else. 
between individuals, we all have variation of our hormone receptors. So some people are going to have higher or lower concentration of estrogen and progesterone receptors at different parts of their body. And then they're also going to have different impacts of those hormones. So there is a lot of individual variability. I really don't think my performance is that impacted in the second part of the cycle. Actually, can I give a really quick education about female menstrual cycle? Oh, absolutely. Go for it. (laughs) So we have two main female hormones and that what differentiates us from the male sex hormone-wise and that we have estrogen and progesterone. Now, the first part of the cycle starts at our period and then goes to ovulation. That's called the follicular phase, and there's essentially only estrogen in that follicular phase. The second part of the cycle, if we've released an egg, and this is in someone who's not on any kind of contraception, a natural cycling female, the second part of the cycle, we have more progesterone and a little bit of estrogen. Now, estrogen is a hormone that's likely beneficial for athletic performance. It increases glucose uptake in muscle cells. So, you know, it's good for high impact, high intensity exercise where we need that glucose. It supports fat oxidization for fuel and has evidence for, you know, being more an anabolic hormone. So it supports kind of anabolic muscle tissue growth. Progesterone increases our core. So in the second part of the cycle, when we have progesterone, it does slightly increase our core body temperature. So that for someone, if when I lived in Tasmania, that was not going to be a big deal. But if I'm living in Sydney where the humidity is 90%, that could impact how I can dissipate heat. And there is studies that have shown in hot temperatures, some athletes don't perform as well in that second part of their cycle. Progesterone increases core temperature. It can be associated with some fatigue. And in terms of a muscle tissue kind of anabolic strength training wise, it doesn't have those same benefits of estrogen that support muscle tissue growth. So there's this is a really important thing to understand. I can say all the theories and mechanisms I want, but in science, often you have mechanisms that then when we do the studies, the outcomes don't actually translate. So this is the theory, and then you need to apply it in reality. And there are some studies showing that late follicular phase when you do quite quite high estrogen. There's some studies in cyclists that maybe performance is improved. Like again, there's individual variability and how and our hormone levels change so much, progesterone especially. You can have progesterone that is six times higher in one female and that's still normal so there's a lot of individual variability the evidence is mixed and that's why at femi we're all about getting you to track your cycle diaries see how you feel so you can learn about your body rather than being told how you should be feeling and that's a huge distinction and i think it's really important is and we are seeing that a little bit more i think as women have recognized that rather than expecting they should feel a certain way that, hey, I I might not feel the same as Izzy does, or I might not feel the same way as my other friend does. I I, I tend to react a little bit differently depending on where I am. And and you mentioned a couple of times the contraception, and I think that's, that's something that bears a little bit of investigation too because as we know there is well I, I, we're, we're dodging around her name stacy sims is really who we're referring to stacy has a, a long track record of really talk quite negatively about contraception use and that has rankled a lot of women who feel like that's none of her business and that if taking control of their own reproductive cycle is something that they want to be able to do while they're participating in sport or anything else what is your sense and what is Femi's attitude towards contraception use in female athletes? And I've talked about this on podcasts and I've said people like having sex. That is okay. Athletes also like having sex and that is should be recognized and normalized. And contraception is an important issue. So we are all about informing, educating, supporting people. So in 
educating athletes that if you are on the combined oral contraceptive pill, which is the main contraception because it's so effective and it's not like the IUD that needs to be inserted, but you can start and stop it quite easily. You can risk not being able to recognize relative energy deficiency syndrome. Um, So that's when your body's not getting enough fuel and your performance could drop and there can be potential negative impacts to your bone health and other aspects of your health. So we do want athletes to be really aware that if you're on the combined or a contraceptive pill, you're not ovulating and you, you don't have that normal warning sign of reds. Then we also and that normal that normal warning sign is is that your period, period stops. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's one thing. Then if you look at performance, there there was some studies that potentially showed a small decrease in VO two max with the combined oral contraceptive pill. But the authors of the study show this is a potential a trivial kind of change. So it's all about athletes. For me, an amateur athlete, does that trivial change in VO two max really matter to me? No. If I was an elite athlete and that 1% was really important, yes, that would be different. There has been a, not just in the sports world, just in general non-medical world, the oral contraceptive pill has been really demonized. And it's a shame because it actually has some health benefits. It does have some potential negative side effects. And that's about informing people rather than having this agenda. And I think there has been a real anti-medicine agenda because these people are starting businesses and starting profiles by doing differently to what doctors are doing. So, of course, they're not going to recommend a prescribed medication. So, in the athlete sense, I talk about risk versus benefit analysis. Is contraception required? Does someone have endometriosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome with bad acne and hirsutism? Is that affecting their mental health? You know, then, of course, I'm going to recommend that the oral contraceptive pill is important and I'll talk about the risks of missing relative energy deficiency. So, it's all about approaching. I'm a physician and I work with individuals It's about the individual in front of me and what their needs, wants are, rather than giving this blanket advice of one thing being good or bad. And and social media has really made things so non-nuanced. It's black or white. This is good. This is bad. I'm going to be raging at this. And that's what gets attention as well. So unfortunate discussions like we're having now aren't as headline grabbing. You took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say exactly that, that these kind of this nuance is lost with the very dogmatic approach. And let's face it, like you said, I mean, in order to generate clicks and in order to generate subscriptions and book sales, you kind of have to get a dispense with that nuance and just be very, very dogmatic. And unfortunately, I think the people who are coming out on the short end are the women themselves. And I really like this, this more nuanced approach that that you guys at Femi are are taking of, of being much more proactive and much more individualistic with talking with women and helping them figure out what would actually be best for them. Another area that Stacey has been quite vocal with uh, hormone replacement therapy for postmenopausal women. There's no question menopause is normal. I mean, that that's kind of her take. Menopause is normal and therefore we shouldn't interact with that or co- contradict that in any way. It's uh, interesting. I, I'm going to, I, so I work in one of like the world's biggest bone health departments. We have created the, one of the calculators we use for assessing fracture risk. So I work with people that have been publishing international journals in bone health, like since I was born, but When people say, oh, menopause is natural, we shouldn't interfere with it. My boss says, well, death is also natural. Do you mind if we interfere with that? And that's definitely not me saying everyone should go on HRT. But looking at this fallacy of just because something is natural doesn't mean modern medicine, which has increased life expectancy from 40 to like 85, 
um, we right. shouldn't use medicine to improve improve people's quality of life and potential health problems. Well, your 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 words are basically exactly echoing what I was just going to say. Because <laughs> I, not well, not too long ago, I had an obstetrician gynecologist on the program who said exactly that. Dr. Kristen Lund was on, and we talked about menopause, and she said just that. She said menopause was normal, but then we came up with a way for women to not suffer. And why shouldn't that be acceptable? And especially if they are suffering. So I'll yeah, go ahead. Say, when we look at evolution, evolution has happened for the good of broader civilization, not necessarily for the good of the individual. Menopause hasn't always been, when we look at when menopause evolved, it hasn't been forever. It was probably, I can't remember when, but not that long ago, in this sense of like tens of thousands of years, we developed menopause. And it was likely because people who couldn't have children, women, were beneficial for the civilization because they were helping look after the other children. They were foraging for food. So women going through menopause benefited the broader civilization. Did the loss of estrogen help the individual? No. We see rates of heart disease, diabetes, osteoporotic fractures all increase significantly at menopause. So just challenging this narrative that just because something is natural means that it is best is incorrect and we need to look at the bigger, broader picture and understand what natural really means. Right. And as you and I were talking about before, evolution takes generations, millennia to really happen. It's a very slow process. And women have only lived decades post-menopause for the last couple of hundred years. So we're probably, yeah, we're probably not going to see a change in the evolutionary process or response to that kind of change in lifespan for a little while. So how does Femi approach HRT for female athletes who are post-menopausal? Yeah. So that is very much my domain. We didn't talk about the HRT that much in the Femi Theory course. I mentioned that it can be a really good option for preventing fractures and managing the symptoms, which just going to say the highest suicide risk of a female's life is in that perimenopause period. And so I think, and I talk about in society, we, so I've gone off topic, say in Femi, we support HRT, but it's all about, again, the individual. If someone has a strong family history of breast cancer, that would be different. So but um, what I was going to say, I think sometimes in society there's this expectation that women should just suffer. Women go through childbirth and are celebrated for not using any pain relief. And it's this almost expectation that they endure. And the same with perimenopause. Suicide increases significantly at perimenopause. I say imagine having the worst PMS of your life for, for some women several years. HRT, for those, if you think about menopause, I think of the symptoms and it's really that perimenopause time that is the hardest for the individual because they've just got these rapidly changing hormones. And so mood and mental health, hot flash symptoms, really severe then after menopause, it's more looking at the impacts of low estrogen, that central adiposity and weight gain, increased diabetes, hypertension, and then bone health. So I definitely, for women who go through menopause early, so in early 40s, and they've done now epidemiological studies that have shown for women who have early menopause in their late 30s, early 40s, HRT has a mortality benefit. So And HRT now, for anyone listening, it has a really bad reputation and that came from the Women's Health Initiative study in the kind of 90s, early 2000s. In this study, they gave people high-dose oral HRT to women who had gone through menopause 15 or 20 years ago. They were starting in women in their 60s and 70s. In clinical practice, we would never do that because people generally by that time would not be having severe symptoms. They saw that people who started on HRT when they were older 
had a slight increased risk of stroke and slight increased risk of heart disease. For the women that go on menopause on HRT within 10 years of menopause, that risk of heart disease and stroke is actually decreased. And clinically, that's what we do. We also now use completely different types of HRT. We only really use topical estrogen, which doesn't have that same increased risk of deep venous thrombosis. And we use micronized progesterone, which so far in studies hasn't been shown to increase breast cancer risk. So um, if we think, if we're basing our decisions on the Women's Health Initiative, we need to go one, it was given to a population group that, you know, would never receive HRT now. Two, it was completely different HRT to what we use. And there's kind of like, I can't, there's like, there's theories that if your body hasn't been exposed to estrogen for a long time and then you add it, it's not good. But, you know, if we started in that perimenopause time, which is when in clinical practice we do, it actually has the health benefits outweigh the risks. So again, it's about the individual, their their symptoms, their beliefs um, about medicine, because some women just do not want to go on hormones and that's up to them as long as they're informed that it is quite safe. And from an athlete population, bone health, osteoporosis, osteoporotic fractures increase overall mortality risk when you look at epidemiological studies of someone a 50 year old having a fracture and this is not me trying to say it's not trying to be controversial it's just literally a study finding we looked at the increased mortality risk of a 50 year old having an osteoporotic fracture as being diagnosed with breast cancer and it was actually the same increased mortality risk so that's not saying breast cancer at 50 isn't really important it's saying osteoporotic fractures and we don't know why but they do end up being associated with death from other causes. You know, there's increased heart disease risk, other kind of overall mortality. So osteoporotic fractures are really important to prevent. So yeah, all again, looking at the individual, their risk, their beliefs, and going from there. So really, I'm very impressed with how you guys have taken this approach of looking at every woman specifically, looking at their specific situation, helping them identify what they need as opposed to just prescribing a one-size-fits-all to everyone. I really like that. So if I'm a female athlete, obviously I'm not, but if I'm speaking for a female athlete who has a coach they already like, does Femi offer something to them? I mean, Femi, I know, is a coaching platform. It's also an educational platform. How does a woman who maybe has a coach she, she likes already, or maybe she's looking for a coach, what, what does Femi offer to a female athlete in different kinds of situations? Yeah, so we also have the education for the female athletes. We've created some little short mini videos and we also have blogs about contraception and relative energy deficiency, which I have written or edited. So I think the education part of things could be really important. And if you wanted to talk to your coach, hey, I've been reading about could my performance being impacted by my menstrual cycle I'm going to start tracking my cycle and maybe me and you as a coach could work together and look through some of the data and say hey is there any difference when I'm training when my estrogen is high without progesterone versus estrogen progesterone only so and at Femi we're really trying to make these conversations about periods and menstrual cycles normal because 10 20 years ago really and we have talked a little bit I feel bad mentioning this, but Stacey Sim and even though I might think that some of her claims are based on mechanisms rather than evidence. She has done some really good awareness and talking about female menstrual cycles and it not being a taboo topic. So I think we're really wanting athletes to feel more comfortable. And even though we are a female coaching company, we're trying to educate our male coaches, our male PE teachers just as much. So I think that's something that you could get out of if you already have a great coach, but try applying some of those principles that we talk about to your training. 
And one of the things I wanted to ask you about is because I've seen this in other female coaching programs. I look at your website. I look at all of the coaches on there. I look at all of the experts you have on there, dietitians, yourself. I think there's a PT on there as well. They're all women, which is great. I I think a a woman-owned company, a woman-directed company is terrific. I see this in other companies that are similar. Feisty Media is one that comes to mind. Sarah Gross uh, runs that company where it's it's geared towards women. And I asked Sarah this same question, and I'll ask you, is is there a space for men to be involved? Because I, I know, for instance, I have several female athletes with whom I have a great relationship. I'm very open about menstrual health with them. I I feel like I can operate in this space, but I almost feel as if there isn't a uh, it's not very welcome. So I, I'm just curious, do you, do you feel like there's a space for men to operate? Now, don't get me wrong, I am very cognizant of the history, and I'm very cognizant of the misogynist background of much of medicine. But I think we're in a space now where there are a lot of men who, who want to be involved, but probably don't feel like there's a place for them. And I'm just curious how you see that. Yeah, I think it's a, a really good question. And historically, as someone who I guess, always went to co-ed schools, have a lot of male friends. Initially, I found the concept of a female-only running organisation a bit maybe like, oh, I don't know if that completely sits well with me. And now since being involved with the Femi community and I think understanding that for some women talking about their menstrual cycles still is a really uncomfortable topic or even running as a group in front of men they would feel really self-conscious and there's something that's something I've never experienced I was a gymnast with male coaches I'm a doctor my boyfriend says he's learned more about period poos and menstrual cycles than he would ever expect so I don't understand why that would be uncomfortable for women but there are so many women that these are really uncomfortable conversations still and they're just dying to feel comfortable talking about their body and I think it actually is a really safe space that we have created at Femi. And I do think in some ways that it is female only has allowed that to happen. And I also think what is quite unique with Femi is that we are a coaching company and this shouldn't be male or women really, but all of our group runs are just casual, casual, like fun. They're not, we don't do our speed work together so um slow easy runs together but the speed work is all done by yourself and as someone who's done a lot of other run groups i do think that maybe when there are men and women it does become a little bit more performance i don't know that's my personal experience but i do think we have created quite a safe space for women who may and we have athletes of all different performances we have athletes who are trying to break a 35 minute 5k and then we have people that are breaking a 18 minute 5k so we have all different athletes and um, in terms of is this a space for men, it's definitely an edu- space for men in terms of we're wanting to educate men and our FEMI education courses, we're getting them accredited with different organisations. We're working with some major sporting organisations like Rugby Australia that all of their ma- male coaches are going to go through these courses so they do feel that they can have these conversations with women because, of course, we can't have it that's only women coaches that feel comfortable talking to their athletes about periods. I think in the short as female athletes maybe we understand as the founders of the company who are creating the course we do understand the unique barriers that women face as athletes and I think that we have all been athletes is a is quite a beneficial part of our experience and what we're giving as well as being professionals. So I didn't know if I really answered that question very well. but Oh, you definitely did. No, you definitely did. I think that's an excellent answer. And I think it, it goes a long way to explaining it in a very satisfactory way. Well, Izzy, 
I I really appreciate this conversation. I I'm really excited that we finally got a chance to sit down together, and I was uh, very interested to learn about Femi. I think it's a terrific organization. I will have links to the website and to the education in the show notes. I encourage anybody who's interested, and that goes for any men or women who are listening to uh, check it out. Izzy Smith is an endocrinologist in Sydney, Australia. She is one of the medical advisors for FEMI, which is a coaching and educational platform that works with women to help them understand their menstrual cycles and how that impacts their training and performance. Izzy Smith, thank you again for joining me on the TriDoc podcast today. No, thank you so much, Jeff. Sorry, I've been hard to catch. I'm just going to finish on one last little note. Um, I really want to emphasize to female athletes here who are listening to this podcast, if you lose your menstrual cycle, even though your performance hasn't dropped, it's a matter of when, not if. So that's what at Femi we really talk about a lot because it's we know for athletic performance, it's all about consistency, sustainability, ongoing volume over years. So if you want to really be your best, having your menstrual cycle and your hormones to protect your, your muscles, your bone health, all of your performance in the long time, please don't let it go for too long because the longer you lose your period, the harder it is to get it back. And our hormones really are so beneficial for performance. So don't let, and please don't let a doctor say to you, oh, you're an athlete, it's normal for you to lose your period because common does not necessarily mean normal. And we all want sustainable athletic careers that we can, you know, have for a long time. The great thing about triathlon and other endurance sports, often you hit your peak in your 40s or maybe even older. That's my goal to reach my peak in my, maybe as a master's athlete. So yeah, having our hormone health be in check is really going to benefit our long-term health and performance. So yeah, our periods can be can be really great signs of that we're fueling our body and we're ready to train and be our best. Excellent advice. Thanks, Jeff. Izzy, thanks again for joining me. Talk to you again soon. Bye. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the TriDoc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at TriDocPodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or join the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tri.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDark Podcast Facebook page, TriDark Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDark Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121, train hard, train healthy.